Please take your seats. Let's turn once more to the Lord in prayer. Merciful Heavenly Father, we now approach your word. Father, what a weighty task this is to come to your infinite, inerrant, infallible word and to seek your message for us. Father, I would pray that you would use this word in a mighty way today, but that you would send your spirit now, that we would understand what you would have us know today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12, where we continue our study in the book of Samuel. Hear now the word of God. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me about the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hands have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see 
that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and in the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of God for the people of God. Indeed. I think now is when we hit this time in our study of Samuel where we hit the uh, interesting bits, the familiar bits. Uh, I think the beginning of the book of Samuel can seem to us a, a, a bit detailed, a little ancient Israeli, and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. This might be the turning point. It's a turning point for the nation of Israel, where they move from this judge-theocratic type thing to a political full-on monarchy with a king like the nations. But even this chapter can seem, I think, to us confusing. There's a lot of details here. There's a lot of things that Samuel says and does, which I think get lost in large part due to those details, the, the people, the places, the time of year. What is this ceremony they're doing? We're reminded, I think, that context in the topic of biblical study is important. That 1 Samuel 12 does not happen within a vacuum. That there are 11 previous chapters, and even indeed before that, several books which chronicle the history of Israel. For example, here in this chapter, Samuel references a king. Who is this king? Who is this person he's referring to? This one's pretty easy, right? It's King Saul. We just met him a couple chapters ago. Pastor Lee has done a great study on who he is and set us up for the failures he will go through. But now let me ask a different question. What is a covenant lawsuit? What is an intercessor? Where is all this coming from? Why does it matter that it's wheat harvest? Why is God rebuking wickedness when he just saved and redeemed Israel for doing the right thing and turning to their king? You see, I think we can get confused. We can get confused about what's going on here. So let's just take a very brief moment and set up the context. First, what's going on here, and I think actually at the end of the previous chapter when they renew the kingdom, is something called a covenant renewal ceremony. It's a ceremony wherein they know they did something wrong, particularly at the end of chapter 11, they realized, oh, hey, we let some people in the kingdom, they say our king. We've got to deal with that. But now Samuel brings before them something, I think, a bit more important than that. 
And so if you're going to renew the kingdom, it's important then, it makes sense now to renew the covenant. Why? Because Israel has committed a grave sin before the Lord. And it's incumbent upon the Lord to send an intercessor to reveal this to them. If God is to be faithful to his covenant promises, if he is to be faithful to the promise that God will be their God and they shall be his people, they must be told of their sin. And I think this will help us understand what's the big deal in asking for a king? I mean, we know that there's laws. Pastor Lee told us there's laws about kings in Deuteronomy. God anticipated this. If not downright commanded that one day they wouldn't have a king. We also know the end of this story if we peek ahead. Spoiler alert, there's going to be a really good king coming later on, King David. King David gets a lot of praise. But then if you flip even a few more pages, we get a righteous, glorious, perfect king. King Jesus Christ. Coming back in Davidic fashion, conquering his enemies and setting up his everlasting kingdom. What's the big deal? But if we understand this is happening within a covenant renewal ceremony, I think things begin to start to make sense. One final word on covenant renewal ceremonies. This isn't the first one in the history of Israel. You've seen this a few times. This happens at the end of Joshua when they set up a, a, an altar and Joshua has to raise up an army and go after a couple tribes and say, no, 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 you're doing this wrong. And they, they realize, see, we're outside of the promised land. Let's renew the covenant. Let's renew the promises. Promise that you'll come to our aid and we promise we'll come to yours. This happened in the wilderness after uh, time after time after time of the wilderness generation saying, oh, but Egypt was so much better. Was it really? God has to remind them through this covenant renewal ceremony. But perhaps an even bigger question we need to ask and answer before we dive into the particulars of this ceremony is, what is a covenant? That's a big word. I think in simple form, first, covenants are agreements. They're binding contracts. It's an agreement between at least two different parties, in this case between Yahweh and his people Israel. Second, they contain promises, glorious, wonderful things, that if you keep the terms of your end of the bargain, you will receive blessing. You will receive blessing and protection. But that's not the only thing. Third, covenants contain what? Curses. That if you break your end of the deal, if you violate the covenant, these bad things will happen to you. And then finally, we get some formal aspect to it, which again is, I think, a part of why we may be a little confused about what's going on here in the story. We don't have ceremonies like this anymore, but there is a formal declaration through a ceremony of some sort. So with all of that in mind, let's now turn our attention back to chapter 12. Let's turn our attention back to Samuel. And I think the first thing we realize is, uh uh-oh, Israel has broken the covenant. Uh Uh-oh, Israel has rejected God as king over them. Uh Uh-oh, covenant curses are coming. But praise be unto God that he sends an intercessor. Someone who will come and stand between the two parties of the covenant to mediate some form of an agreement. 
some form of restitution to put the covenant back in its place, to put both parties back on track. And in 1 Samuel 12, we're told that this person is none other than the judge, the priest, Samuel himself. And we see that he foreshadows the great intercessor to come, Jesus Christ, in three particular ways. First, he shows that he himself is innocent. He's innocent of any covenant breaking, covenant violation, covenant wrongdoing. Secondly, Samuel shows Israel that they are not, that they are guilty, that they have broken the covenant, and he does so with clarity and boldness. And finally, Samuel as intercessor points us once again to the depth of God's riches and his mercy for his people. He shows how gracious our God is. Now, I think at this point, some of you may say, no, hang on, wait a second, Pastor Jim. Before you go on any further, Samuel's not my intercessor. And this covenant is not my problem. And this Old Testament-y thing, uh, I don't know, I don't know. Let's, let's get back to Romans. Let's get back to Paul. Let's get back to Jesus' as intercessor. But I want to say to you this morning that you and I, we stand on the same covenantal grounds. That there still is a covenant between God and his people, the church. And we have an intercessor, Jesus Christ. And there's a great deal that we can glean from this. There's a great deal we can see about Jesus Christ's intercession here in 1 Samuel 12. So let's look first then, as Samuel brings this lawsuit against God's people, at Samuel's innocence. This may initially strike us as self-serving. Samuel wants attaboys. He wants some pats on his back. He, He wants some plaudits. He wants approval. You remember back just a few chapters ago, Samuel was very discouraged. And what did God have to do? He had to encourage him. They didn't reject you. They rejected me. We might think, okay, it makes sense then. Samuel is upset, and he's looking for a way to vindicate himself. But I think this misses the mark. I think that we shouldn't mistake his cleverness in what he's doing as arrogance. In fact, what he's doing here is very humble. He's embodying that that plank log analogy that Jesus uses in Matthew 7. He's making sure that he is right before their eyes before he then accuses them of something. A good, innocent intercessor then is first introspective. In what ways could I have sinned? In what ways could I have violated the covenant? This is not arrogance But it's decisive, humble, God-honoring leadership. We see that Samuel is going to be in hot water if he's wrong. You ever have somebody accuse you of something that's just not right? Maybe on the basis of false information? Maybe on the basis of a rumor? I don't think that your first inclination is anything like what Israel might do. I think your first inclination is probably... Uh, A bit better than my first inclination. My first inclination is to get mad, to get angry, to start my own lawsuit, to counter-sue against the person accusing me. Is that your tendency? I think if that's your tendency, or if you know somebody with that tendency, you see then Samuel's position. Samuel's going in front of people, accusing them of a great sin, and where he begins is simple. Testify against me. 
truly and sincerely. Where did I go wrong? Notice that he brings up his sons. You remember his sons were like Hophni and Phinehas who weren't so good. He openly admits, my sons are with you. I've taken them out of power. I've adjusted. I've righted that wrong. Where else have I gone wrong? And interestingly, obviously the text tells us very quickly and briefly, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. A very simple thing. So let's move on. Jim, point two. Let's get cooking. We've got the Lord's Supper coming. But I want to camp out here for a second. I want to, I want to say this is incredible. If you think about this for a second, remember context. What's going on in the life of Israel right now? War. Oppression. Enemies. The Ammonites just tried to conquer all of these people. And Samuel is old and gray. And he served the Lord quite literally since his youth. Since birth. And not a single person in all of those years can testify against him. Not even one person can say that he overcharged me a penny. Not one person can say he took one more sheep than he was supposed to. Not one person can say he was like Hophni and Phinehas and he dug his fort deeper than he should have. Not one person in a time of chaos, in a time usually known for bribes and making money, no one. Isn't it incredible how God protected his intercessor? Isn't it incredible how innocent Samuel is before the Lord? But I want to also say, notice too, how much this prepares him for what he's about to do. God has used this innocence to prepare him to go before God and his people the, and the new anointed king to say, you have sinned. How many of us would do that? How many of us, if we were innocent, let's take that for granted. Let's put ourselves in this, this person's shoes. How many of us would risk safety would risk money, would risk our property, our reputation, our lives to stand up for the right thing, to discipline when it's necessary, to address sin as it is, an evil thing, and to call for repentance. How many of you would do as 21-year-old Riley Howell did this past week, recognizing danger to those around him, charging a gunman on UNCC's campus to save lives. How many of you would continue confessing faith in China when the government is killing, quite literally killing, our brothers and sisters in the faith? I confess I, I don't know what I would do. I'm truly terrified of being faced in that moment, alone and afraid, having to think, is this one of those times I stand up and say something, or is this one of those times where I recognize I'm just a 28-year-old, I've got nothing to offer. 
Or is this going to be one of those times where I look in the mirror every morning and every evening and say, Jim, do you trust the Lord? Do you trust in His goodness? Do you trust that doing the right thing will cause you harm and shame? Will cause people to hate you? That doing the right thing often ends up in unsafe positions. I think in this passage we see Samuel setting a very high bar. He goes before an entire nation which is probably still dressed for battle. Probably still has all of their swords and spears. And he looks them in the eye and he says, you are a group of sinners. You have sinned against the Lord. I think Samuel does three things which we ought to take note. If we would be leaders in this world, if we would be leaders in God's church, if we would be leaders in this Christian life, we need to recognize Samuel does three things. He puts himself last. He puts Yahweh first. And he does the right thing even when it's not a good idea. Does this remind you of another intercessor in Scripture? An intercessor who came putting himself last, not to be served, but to serve? Does this remind you of an intercessor that put Yahweh first as he prayed, not my will, but yours be done? Does this remind you of an intercessor who went to the cross to do the right thing for God's people? And through this risen Christ, through this godly intercessor now, God calls you and me to be like this Christ, standing up for what is good. And not even repaying evil with evil, but going so far as to say repay evil with good. Will you put yourself last? Will you put Yahweh first? And will you do the right thing when it's not a good idea? But that's not the point of this passage, as much as I would love to end it there with that piercing question. No, this passage actually is primarily concerned with the guilt of Israel. It's primarily concerned, not with Samuel's innocence, but with Samuel coming in this covenant prosecution role with a history lesson. He reminds them, hey, do you remember when you were oppressed by the Egyptians and God raised up for you leaders when you cried out? Do you remember when you were oppressed by the Hazarites and the Philistines and the Moabites and God raised up judges for you when you cried out? Why then, when this puny little Ammonite army shows up, do you reject Yahweh and his purposes? Why then do you think that Yahweh can't do this? And at this point, I just have to ask the question, isn't this so typical? That we go through things over and over. We go through months where it's paycheck to paycheck. We go through hard issues at church or at work or wherever it may be, and we think to ourselves, oh no, God can't do it this time. This one is too much. This one is too hard. This is too much money. This is going to totally ruin me. 
isn't just so typical, particularly of Israel, who just complains and complains and complains and complains. But I think this is typical of me, too. I think it's typical of me to to get an unexpected bill and go, I'm not going to be able to put food on my table now when I've got a pantry full of food. My rent is going up. I don't know how we can afford this. My boss didn't like my presentation. I didn't get the promotion which I needed. I had to take my children to the hospital, and now I've got a $700 bill, and I've got no idea how to address this. I've got no money in my bank account. This is too much. This is too hard. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Does this remind you of another covenant intercessor who went into the bedchambers of his wife's servant, thinking this is too hard for God, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to go and see Hagar. You see, I think that unlocks this entire passage for us. In asking for a king, Israel is guilty of violating the covenant simply by rejecting God himself. By disbelieving that God can save him, even though he's done it again and again. Even though he has come to their rescue on numerous occasions... But I think Samuel gets really, really clever here. He doesn't even let them respond. You see that? He says, okay, you've done all this, you've done all this. Now he pauses and he waits. No, he doesn't do that. He says, and I'm going to prove it to you. What time of year is it? It's harvest time. Look at verse 17 again. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm not even going to let you testify against what I'm saying. Now, this is one of those times where the details come up and we don't quite understand it. Harvest time would put it right around this time of year, actually, in the Promised Land. And if you know anything about the Promised Land, right around this time of year, there's not a whole lot of rain. It's a dry season. You don't want harvest time in the midst of a a, a downpour. Can you imagine uh, harvest right now? All of our crops would just flood away. Our lawnmowers and tractors, they would get clogged and jammed. You've got to pick a dry time to harvest. Ralph Davis, the commentator that uh, we just keep going back to because he's so great, he says, this is like Samuel saying to the people of America, there's going to be six inches of snow in Miami on Memorial Day. It's not completely ludicrous, but man, it's close. It's not totally impossible. You know, global warming, all that stuff. But probably not going to happen. Really definitely 99.9% of the time not going to happen, right? You see, this isn't a mere coincidence. In the dry season, Samuel says there's going to be a storm and it's going to be big. And it's going to be nasty. And it's going to be loud and it's going to have a ton of rain. And you know what happens? A storm comes. A storm comes. And God is telling his people... As Samuel says in verse 25, if you don't repent of your sins, if you don't turn back to the gracious Lord and God, you will be swept away. You and your king. You see, even King Saul has nothing on King Yahweh. You think King Saul is going to save you from the Ammonites? What about King Yahweh? 
King Saul is nothing compared to King Yahweh. So what are we to make of this? Is Israel hopeless? Should they now therefore go and, and whip themselves on the back and do penance and, and hurt themselves and harm themselves and, and deprive themselves of things? Is God a God of wrath who delights in pain? No, this is an act of mercy. Do you see that? Do you understand that God is telling us that our sins are actually a big deal? That they are offensive to him. And that going against this God is a mightily foolish thing to do. And so what does he do? He sends an intercessor, an innocent intercessor to come in and say, he has destroyed the Egyptians, he's destroyed the Hazarites and the Philistines, and now the Ammonites. How many times does he have to do this for you to understand? And this, I think, is the entire goal. If the point of this passage is for Samuel to show the guilt of Israel, the goal of showing them that, and truly the goal of all discipline, is something very simple. To win your brother and your sister back to the fold. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's painful. But they must, as this passage says over and over and over again, obey the voice of Yahweh. Now that's going to be very important. Hang your hats on that one. That phrase, obey the voice of the Lord, it's going to get violated in the next chapter, and then again in the next chapter, and then again in the next chapter. And we're going to see why God rejects King Saul. But I want to say something very quickly. I think I may have accidentally painted a picture for you that I don't want to. We do not respond to conviction of sin. We do not respond to our guilt before God with beating ourselves up. We don't look at ourselves and say, oh, how unworthy we are. We actually have to respond like the people of Israel. Look again at how they responded. You see that they respond in repentance. You see that they ask Samuel to pray to the Lord for them, to intercede on their behalf. God doesn't want to pour out wrath upon Israel. God doesn't want obedience just for obedience' sake. I was reading in, in a book the other day, and this quote jumped out at me, and I thought it was fascinating. It changed my entire view of, of what obedience to God looks like. It really was like a paradigm-shifting moment for me. It's in a book called One with Christ by Marcus Peter Johnson. He writes this, very simple. He says, God, quite frankly, is not interested in our morality or virtue. He's not interested in our morality or our virtue. He's interested in our reflecting of his holiness. God doesn't want us to be good just so that we are good people. He wants us to be good because then we mirror our creator. Then we picture who he is. And so obeying the voice of the Lord here, it's not some ethical enterprise in, in order to, to do something good, therefore to receive something good. Nor is it a response of, of receiving something good, therefore we must pay him back in, in good deeds. No, obeying the voice of the Lord is good enough on its own because God is good enough on his own. Because God is good enough himself. 
But there's a problem. We can't do it. There's a problem. Israel can't do it. There's a problem. In the next couple of chapters, they're not going to do it. God addresses this problem. He says Jesus Christ can. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do it. And so we must understand, we have to see that in a covenant relationship with God, which in Christ we are in a covenant relationship with him, we try to obey the voice of the Lord, not on our own, but because God is merciful, he is just, and he gives us a helper in the Holy Spirit. He gives us the presence of Jesus Christ himself even though Jesus is at the right hand. And what is he doing at the right hand? Making intercession for you and for me. You remember the words of Hebrews 7? Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you notice that? He always lives to make intercession Christ, therefore, is unlike Samuel because Christ will never die. For Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. But Christ is like Samuel in that Christ will never cease to pray for you. Christ will never cease to turn to his left, to his Father, to God on his throne, and to make intercession for you. Have you sinned in the past? Me too. It is forgiven in Christ. It is washed away. It is no more. Come to this table. Come to this table and recognize that your sins have been forgiven. And you better come to this table with a smile on your face. I'm not doing it today, so I can't see. So I'm going to make sure Pastor Lee sees that today. Friends, God is so merciful and he is so gracious in one simple thing. Providing an intercessor who has defeated the Amorites He's defeated the Ammonites. He's defeated the Moabites, the Hazarites, the Egyptians. He's defeated everything, including sin and death. Therefore, this day, repent and seek after him. Obey the voice of the Lord to look more like this great and glorious intercessor, Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him for help for that. Merciful Heavenly Father, we confess that we do not yet see the day in which there is no more sin. We do not yet have our glorious bodies that are no longer affected by the corruption and guilt of sin. And therefore, Lord, we know we are realistic about this simple fact. We will sin. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would spur us on in those moments to not sin. But if we do sin, Father, remind us that we have an advocate before you, Jesus Christ the righteous, who, like Samuel, stood between the gap, who made it possible to be right with God. Lord, would we turn now our attention to him as we approach your table, as we approach the holy sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Forgive us our sins and allow us to see Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.